Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 112, the one about Mr. Bates versus the post office, screenwriting maxims, and where eagles dare. Let's get on with the show. Well, welcome everyone to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, my co-host, a marketing speaker and consultant who has spent his whole career helping his customers keep their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Catsmaster Marketing Plans and the creator of the Roger video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is a digital marketing veteran. He's a speaker, trainer, and advisor with nearly three decades of experience. He enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build better online campaigns faster. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much. And thank you to you, a lot of the audience viewers and listeners. And this is episode 112, Roger. 112 and our first episode of 2024. Yes, and that's been interesting because that break is is is, is twofold, isn't it? Sometimes you fear that you're going to get out of habit of getting on with a show, that you're going to start to get a bit slack on your research techniques and so on. But actually, it's been very helpful for you and I to reflect on the impact we want to have with the, the series. You can listen it on audio and video. And our mission remains the same, this idea of it's a tough job out there to be in charge of marketing, whether that's a full-time position or part-time position in, in addition to everything that you've got to do. And what we need is support each other as a, uh, as, a, as a collective, look at ways to be more imaginative and innovate all of the time. And this is what we do with our different segments. We look at ways marketing is, is deployed in different uh, sectors and in different kind of um, consumer and client relationship, but also in other industries, which is why we always end with one of our favorite segments if not the favorite segment, uh, film marketing. Yeah, film marketing. And I've chosen today's film, and I've gone back in time quite a long way um, for a film. Am I allowed to say which film it is? Or should we of course, we oh, must, yeah. we must. Okay, so today's film was released in 1968. It's called Where Eagles Dare. Quite honestly, probably one of the best War films are bleak, adventure films are bleak, men on a mission films ever made. And I I was thinking of a film that Pascal and I could review the marketing of over the last few days. And I think it was, it was Trisha that mentioned Where Eagles Dare. And of course, I went on to uh, YouTube, started watching a few videos, and within minutes, I was absolutely down that proverbial rabbit hole, <laughs> finding out all this interesting stuff about this film from such a long time ago, over 50 years ago. And we've got, a, we'll have a great conversation about the film, how it's influenced films that have come since, but also the marketing lessons that we always draw from the films that we review. Absolutely. And, and interestingly, uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying your exploration of uh, the marketing war film. So uh, some episodes ago, you took us back to 1957 with Paths yeah. of Glory. We've got um, Where Eagles Dare, which, uh, as I mentioned in the green room, that means that there has to be a third one 
in you know in time for you to finish that trilogy because um yeah as a as a product as a genre you know th there is this challenge of marketing so we look back at what 1968 was like for all of us the competition but also what do you do when you do something that is a bit different to what the audience has been used to so you are launching a new offering and a new market before we do so we'll be going through the marketing tech and apps we'll be going through our this week in history content spotlight and coming right now in the news so in the news this week we're going to be looking at the 2024 marketing and customer services trends that we need to be watching out for first one marketers will need to be flexible and fast to adjust marketing strategies and plans may need to be adapted often in response to customer input and real-time data while consumers will be using a range of search techniques and platforms such as voice pictures or even file search, content markets will need to modify their efforts to accommodate diverse search modes. Even with the emergence of AI technologies and social media, the human touch in customer service and genuine storytelling in content production will always be important. And for retailers to provide a personalized shopping experiences, data from several touchpoints must be integrated, in particular combining first-party data with behavioral insights. Voice search and chatbot technologies will gain traction thanks to AI requiring marketing campaigns and contact activities to be optimized for voice-driven interactions. Price, value and saving money are the three main factors influencing our buying behaviour, but consumers are increasingly considering sustainability when selecting products and services. It is now imperative, not optional, for business strategy to incorporate AI, particularly generative AI. For leaders, this means a dramatic change in the skills and employment positions that are needed. And in 2024, both consumers and businesses will challenge what AI can accomplish for them. Any projects that simply do not improve the customer experience will be rejected or abandoned. There's some really good stuff in here, Pascal, but I'm going to sort of just tail this by one little warning. Because us marketers always just get so excited by all the new tech that's coming out, all the new buzzwords. And AI, yes, we, we hear about it all over the place. But... What will not change in 2024 is the basic principles of marketing. The basic principles of marketing are finding a group of customers, working out what those customers' needs are, and creating a product or service that meets those needs, and then communicating the hell out of that product or service. Those things never change. The technology and the tactics surrounding that, that might change, but those fundamental principles don't. And if we forget that, we become seduced by all the tactical stuff. And that's where we start making mistakes. Yeah, and what, what is interesting for me, I mean, so these were trends that were selected on purpose because they were thoughts and insights and, and statements by marketers themselves. Because on occasion, you get the other side of this idea of, you know, trends and making predictions using data and stats. But the problem with, with percentage of these and the percentage of that, these are global uh, numbers. So they don't really apply often to what you do. So these were marketers reflecting on the, the uh, what's coming around the corner. And the the one that you read, this idea of particularly around social media, particularly in the spotlight, even though you have an emergence of AI technologies, in fact, all of them, Meta and all the others, are kind of shoehorning in AI plugins of sort. It is clear that the human touch in customer service and genuine storytelling content production would always be important. So you have to have that mindset and that skill set in existence already. 
to be able to get you know to get value from AI and and the danger with with AI is it's just a the, the next iteration of of tech. Um, do you remember when Microsoft PowerPoint came along in the '90s and people thought they could all become speakers and presenters? And then <laughs> you know suddenly, and then there's another one, another one. So so for me, I, I would agree with you. You know, and there was an article written in Inc.com I came across saying that actually it makes complete sense for those in charge of marketing and the full version of marketing right mm -hmm. which i know you, you're again a big advocate it's not just the bit when you, you do shout outs on social media but the the, the whole four seven p's of marketing it makes sense therefore for the individuals working for that division to also be in charge of the r d element of using ai to support the activities of the workers in your organization yeah, and you know, it's really interesting. One of my clients has already decided to run an event, and this will probably happen in March or April. And even though the title of the event hasn't been finalized yet, it will be something along the lines of how do we retain the human touch in our marketing in the face of AI technology? I mean, that's not a very snappy title for a conference, but it will be something along those lines. And, and that gives you the gist. So people are thinking about this already and you know you can see it starting to happen companies are starting to integrate ai into their customer service and sometimes it's just not working right pascal do you know i remember back to do you remember back to when we first started sending call centers offshore mm -hmm. um, we started opening call centers in india and opening call centers in the caribbean and that sort of thing mainly because it was cheaper to do it and companies could save a fortune by offshoring their call centers but service levels absolutely plummeted because yes okay it was a cheaper way of doing it but it wasn't a good quality service and after a while a lot of companies started bringing all their telephony back onshore in order to improve the service. And, and we are in danger of, of committing the same mistake that we think, oh, AI is gonna be cheaper and easier than humans. And unless we get it right, we'll repeat history and we'll find our service levels plummet. Yeah, and, and I, I would like to think, particularly with the last statement I read, that we, we have learned from the past. And now we're talking about 30, 40 years of technology and you know, the, the promise you know, of it'd be better, faster, safer, and it feels as though we've had to wait quite a bit. But this idea of actually any projects that simply do not improve customer experience would be rejected and abandoned. And I'll, it's reassuring for me because uh, all too often what would have happened. So my memory of tech gone wrong was um, installing CRN systems do you remember back in the days where some of my uh, employers would be sold a CRM system that wasn't fit for purpose it was too big too, comp too complicated and then the weeks and weeks of agony to try and get your colleagues to use it and because it was so difficult to use and it wasn't part of our strategy uh, eventually but it was never abandoned because there was an element of shame about a the, the lead up time the discussions the meetings then the cost of the CRM system itself and then eventually um, you know, years could go by before someone would say, listen, shall we just drop it and draw a line under it? And, and so that for me, there's also this idea of decades of poor experience with technology that's making people just more cautious, more, more, more nervous. And, and I don't think that AI is going to escape that. You know, I think people should actually be very pragmatic and, and actually study and challenge and, and create a strong business case before you invest. I mean, some of the AI solutions are very low cost, but actually they, they, they would cost an enormous amount of time and potentially they could have a negative impact on the motivation of your team as well.
that maxim is a good one to end on pascal this idea that no project should happen unless it improves customer experience because let's face it you know since the pandemic i actually think service customer service in in pretty much any industry doesn't matter whether it's airlines hotels marketing consultancy whatever service levels are just not what they used to be you know um the in in hospitality they haven't got the staff to provide the service that they used to and we can't go down a route where customer service gets worse so anybody watching this anybody listening to this pascal and i are imploring you to embrace this new technology by all means and we will be doing the same but do not do it unless it improves the customer experience rather than worsens it Thank you very much. So let us know, all of you, you know, additional trends that perhaps you've spotted, uh, your own reflection on what it means to be a business leader today and what it means to be in charge of marketing and, and communication. Really fascinating because I think this year there will be a lot of platform are going to change. So we're going to have to sometime retrain and relearn ourselves. But this idea of quickly abandoning projects to avoid you know that negative experience i think it's going to be absolutely fascinating listen let's continue our reflection on what it means to be a marketer in today's economy with our next segment the content spotlights Now, in this segment of the show, we surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, an infographic, a video, something that can help us reflect on what it means to be in charge of marketing in today's economy. As I mentioned a moment ago, I cheated, Roger. I read the show <laughs> notes and I am so delighted. Please let us know what is your selection for today. Oh, Pascal, I knew you would like this. I knew you would like this. So this is from a website called No Film School, and the heading of the article is an exhaustive list of screenwriting maxims and their definitions written by Jason Hellerman. Now, obviously in this podcast, we talk about marketing strategy. We talk about marketing tactics, tech and apps. And of course we talk about film marketing, not be, not only because we love films, but because we like to extract the marketing lessons that we can get from watching films and how they were uh, presented to the public. And this article just reminded me how closely woven film writing techniques, filmmaking techniques are interwoven with the marketing process. And as soon as I started reading this article and I started seeing some of these maxims that, that we're going to talk about in a moment, I just thought this is this is so good. A marketer reading this is going to start nodding their heads vigorously within seconds because so much of what is relevant to filmmaking is absolutely relevant to marketing as well. So there are so many of these, Pascal, we could spend two hours going through them so i've only i've only um, highlighted a few but i think it will give you an idea of what i'm saying so it says creating an exhaustive list of screenwriting maxims and their definitions can be quite extensive but i'll highlight some of the most recognized influential ones and that's jason saying that he's going to cut it down to a manageable <laughs> size and there's already 53 so we're not going to go through 53 but the here are some of the ones which i think from a marketing point of view, absolutely key. Number one, the first one that um, we have here is show, don't tell. Now again, think about how many times you've stood on a stage in a presentation or at an event and it's tell, 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 but isn't it better to show and to demonstrate? And that's 
keys to storytelling, isn't it? It's key to filmmaking is to give people that sense that they're discovering it for themselves rather than having somebody tell them what's going on. You know, it's much better to have somebody wander out and see a herd of dinosaurs wandering along a hillside and see their mouths drop open rather than somebody say, we were absolutely amazed by all those dinosaurs that we saw over there. The second one, which I absolutely love, and this is so relevant for marketing people, is start late, leave early. Now, what that's saying is that if you have a scene that you're shooting in a film, it's probably better to start the action somewhere into it. So if you're editing later, you get to a really important bit and you start there and then you leave the scene before what once you've made the point rather than have the scene out uh, stay on screen for too long and this is so relevant to when you're writing pretty much any form of copy whether it's a press release whether it's a blog article whether it's a bigger article the tendency is to give a lot of background to uh, go into the a lot of detail and then at the end you'll maybe make your point and then you'll have a really long outro but what you can do is you can cut so much out at the start and hit them straight away with the main concept or the main uh, theory and then once you've made your point you get out of there you just cut and you'll see journalists do this if you read a news article it will hit you with everything that's happened rather than the build up you know um, plane crashes in the uh, in the Alps or something like that they're not going to start way back at the beginning of the journey, they're going to tell you what happened and then they may in investigate what happened later on. The next one, gosh, we're only three in here, Pascal, the three act structure. Again, so relevant for when you're writing presentations and when you're writing content, whether it's a, you know, a video or whatever it is. And it's that the first act sets up the story introduces the characters and the conflict and if you're writing about your business the characters could be you and it could be your business the second act develops these and introduces conflict and then of course the third act resolves them and and that is the basic structure of storytelling and we know how powerful storytelling can be in our marketing journey Another one I had, I love this one, Save the Cat, <laughs> a term popularized by screenwriter Blake Snyder, apparently. It refers to the idea of making your protagonist likable early in the script through an admirable or relatable action. Again, really good um, advice there. Number seven is kill your darlings. Honestly, Pascal. How often have you made a video? How often have you written an article? And you keep paragraphs in, you keep shots in, you keep points in, because you've written it, you've shot it, you want everything to be in there. But there comes a point when you've got to say, no, 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 the pace is too slow or it's it's not moving along quicker. And you have to cut, don't you? You have to take something out to make it work. And there you go. It's uh, It's so important to... Be quite ruthless with your editing. And those were the main ones that stuck out for me, Pascal, in reading this article. There, there are other ones like write what you know. I mean, again, you wouldn't write an article about something you don't know. But these days with AI, you know, you could do, couldn't you? And then you might fall foul because you haven't got the knowledge to check what the AI is actually output. Um, there's other things like oblig obligatory scenes, emotional truth, the inner journey. 
mm. writing visually, raising the stakes. You know, we've already established the character, etc. But now we've got to raise the stakes. And just going down, you've got things like mystery versus suspense, um, the economy of the characters, actions speak louder than words. Again, that's very similar to the one that we saw earlier, isn't it? And the ba balance of dialogue and action, again, that can that can be important in a presentation. Sometimes in a presentation, you might actually want to act out a scene between a customer and you or whatever it might be. And the, again, if you get that balance right, it's going to make your content so much more engaging. And that was effectively it. I would, I would ask everybody who's watching this show or listening to the show to check that this article out. See if you can get to number 53 and then see how many you've ticked to see whether these would be relevant for you as a marketer. And I reckon you'll tick at least half of them, if not more. This is such a fine selection. I mean, not because it's linked to the film industry, but also because back to, you know, the, the reason or raison d'etre, if I may use some French, of this show, stimulating imagination, giving you new ideas, challenging the status quo, you know, uh, getting that spark, that fire back in your belly. And and this article, it literally, I can imagine back in the good old days, if it was in a printed, you would do a copy and send, you know, print it and put it on people's desk and say, have a read during your next coffee break, because this is what it's all about. And sometime when we all are up against deadlines and last minute request and project um, creep, as you called it in the recent LinkedIn post and so on. We, 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 we just sometime, you know, it just erodes our ability to tell good stories that is rather natural when we are very, very younger than it's beaten out of you by the school system. Then you have to relearn to tell good you know, stories when you move into, into the, in, into the workplace. So thank you. A great, great selection and um, something that people should definitely read and, and get back to us with your comments about your favorites from that article, an exhaustive list of screenwriting maxims and their definition by Jason Hellerman. Great. So, Pascal, what have you brought to the table this week? So, by pure accident, because, you know, we don't discuss, you know, the, the, the construct of the show in advance with, with Roger, but I have chosen something to help us reflect on the power of storytelling and how you can connect with your audience. And perhaps Oddly, for the content spotlights, I've gone for a recent ITV, ITV being a UK TV channel, ITV drama series called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. And if you are a UK resident and perhaps internationally, it would be very uh, strange for you not to have heard, perhaps more recently, about the Post Office scandal and the cover up attempt by Fujitsu, the post office and other senior you know, decision makers, including government, about this idea of the sub postmasters being essentially obligated to use a faulty IT systems that would suggest that people were stealing money from post office limited. And what is interesting for me, so not, not um, obviously won't be able to do justice in terms of a the drama itself, four part episode, but truly heartbreaking to watch, you know, uh, kind of normal people, and talk about protagonists and people you can relate to, normal people who wanted to provide a service to their local community because that's, what, that's who they are as individuals, being falsely accused of crimes from theft to uh, false accounting and so on in the hundreds 
some of them went to prison. Some of them have had to, um, you know, close shop and and have their whole career demolished. Uh, kids were bullied at school. I mean, the, the whole aftermath of of this is just staggering. However, this has been going on since the late nineties, and the question that people have been asking, including the the main protagonist, the real one, you know, people like uh, Alan Bates and, and and others who were accused, the the reporters from Computer Weekly to Nick Wallace, journalists who have been following the story for twenty years now, or people from Private Eye, they've all been asked in interviews, "Are you disappointed? Are you frustrated that it took a TV uh, drama for suddenly?" things to change because things are changing there is now a public inquiry and so on and actually to their credit um nick Wallace in particular being hislop and the others have said actually we're not we're, we're delighted that you know finally it's getting the attention it deserves but it shows the power of storytelling that is to say that it's so complex what has happened the cover-up is so complex and it's so long you know better part of 25 years that you had to find a way to distill it down to just a few people. So actually, the series looks at I think four individuals out of the hundreds that were impacted upon by you know this scandal and cover up. And what um, the words used by Nick Wallace, the, the the lead reporter, was it allowed people to feel what it was like to be essentially accused of those crimes and to feel the anguish and, and anxiety of having to try and clear your name for the better part of 20 years and, and that to me is is the lesson from you know from this it's, it's it's a warning about it and blindly believing that it's always fine um i think it's a warning about bigger brands but also smaller ones about being so anxious to protect your brand that you end up perhaps by accident or willingly to start to lie and deceive. But this idea of if you want an audience to understand the benefits of your product or the services, if you want an audience to understand the key message, you've got to tell it via the prism of a small number of individuals, maybe just one individual that represents the bigger group. But that individual needs to be carefully selected so that they are re relatable. And this is what the ITV drama achieved because the the shockwave and the tsunami of activity uh, within weeks and months is quite staggering compared to the apathy of the last 25 years this show we watched all four episodes in mm. one night i mean it's binge it's binge watching once you start watching it it is it must watch and i couldn't help boiling with rage all the way through boiling with rage at how badly these people have been treated by the government, by their employer, and by the company that provided the IT system, Fujitsu. And the, you're absolutely right that the complete conviction that these people had that their technology was flawless was just beyond beyond belief. Uh, and, and, you know, going right back to the beginning of the show when we were talking about, you know, everybody's mass now obsession with AI and how that can help us in the future. We cannot allow that to happen with AI, that we believe in it so much that we think that humans will be always wrong and the machines will always be right. That is the path that leads to this sort of disaster. And, and everybody's implicated in it. Government, as we've said, the post office management. I mean, some of these people probably should be in prison, Pascal, and, and maybe that's where they'll end up. Um, and, and people should be held to account to this because they have they have destroyed lives. And, and, and sadly, some, some people have actually 
taken their own lives as a result of of, of what's happened here. And 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 it's 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 quite heartening on the one hand that a show like this has created finally the impetus to f- try and fix the issue and to b- hold those people to account. But on the other side of the coin, it's actually quite sad that it takes a show like mm. this to get people to sit up and realise what's been happening to finally take action. So I think the show wins from both those points of view because it has created that hopefully that solution, but. You know, do we need them to make a show about Brexit? Do we need them to make a show about the Grenville um, disaster? Do we need them to make a show about the uh, Boeing 737 MAX? You know, that's another story that continues to shock me as the days go by. You know, that that plane just doesn't seem to be safe. And yet Boeing and Mm. all of the people are entrenching behind it and saying, no, 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 it's all all right. So fabulous selection, Pascal. And if you haven't seen this TV show, please watch it. You'll probably find that you'll need to block out four hours because once you start watching it, you will probably not be able to stop watching it until the end. But be uh, be absolutely aware that within half an hour, if not less, you will be absolutely boiling with anger that this was allowed to happen. Thank you very much. And, and, and again, you know, that, that's the, the, the reason for the selection, um, the power of storytelling and how to connect with an audience and the one that is recognized by the very people who have been on it for the last, better part of 20 years. Um, so again, your selection and mine, a reminder that this is our role. You know, we, we look at the, the, the key messages, we look at the bigger picture, but we find a way, and sometimes incredibly simple, but simplicity is very difficult. Ask Mr. Roger Edwards about it, to engage an audience, and then they become more inquisitive and, and they look into it in, in, in more details. This has been a fabulous content spotlight, so return to it. We're going to go back in time because all our conversations, all those ideas and the tech we use today is all thanks to pioneers and visionaries of the distant and recent past. Let's move on to this week in history. In 1976, commercial service of the Concorde begins with the London to Bahrain and Paris to Rio routes. The only commercial supersonic jet, the Concorde, could travel between New York and London in about three and a half hours. Concorde flew commercially for 27 years until being retired on November the 26th, 2003. In 1983, the Apple Lisa becomes the first commercial personal computer to have a graphical user interface and a computer mouse. But at a cost of nearly $10,000, the Lisa ended up being a commercial failure for Apple. In 1997, the New York Times reports growing complaints about the San Francisco Public Library sacrificing too much book space for computer terminals and too many books for online information. And in 1999, a research in motion, REIM, introduces the BlackBerry. The original BlackBerry devices were not phones, but instead were the first mobile devices that could do real-time emails. God, do you remember? Did you ever have a BlackBerry? No, my colleagues uh, had one. Um, I, I think I had like um, my very first Sony Ericsson, and I kept it for a very, very long time. Everybody around me was having BlackBerry, but... I already was noticing that they were getting disturbed, like evenings and weekends, getting yeah. messages, because you could do all sorts of things. Um, I played with it, and I just found the keys to be so tiny. And you had this weird little thing that was acting like a cursor to move the, the mouse around the screen. But 
people who were fans of BlackBerry were fans for a very, very long time. Yeah, and you know, obviously completely superseded by smartphones now. But at the time, pretty revolutionary. I remember probably around about year 2000, getting an email from somebody saying, and his, his opening line was, I'm sending you this email from my new BlackBerry. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell is a BlackBerry? And, and of course, had to find out. And then within a few months, everybody was getting Blackberries and we were given Blackberries, the company that I was working for at the time, the big corporate. And I think that that was one of the, that was when it started that you couldn't escape from work because you had this little thing in your pocket, which was constantly pinging you to tell you that you got an email from your boss or you got an email from this person or an email from that. And, and, and you were almost, it was frowned upon if you didn't reply even if it was at night or if it was over the weekend. So whilst it was remarkable technology, it was possibly where the hustle culture, the 24-7 hustle culture originally started. Uh, but obviously, as we said, remarkable um, technology at the time. And I think as the BlackBerry progressed and it turned into actually a proper phone as well you know it was it was interesting that eventually smartphones became more popular and i wonder whether blackberry had they innovated quicker might even have become as popular now as as iphones and androids are yeah it's fascinating because you know what, what is it and, and i think there was a combination of um you know, not having an operating system people from it. So my very, very first smartphone was a Windows phone. Yeah. It, was, it was almost square, it was, uh, and I had to have a stylus. And and then, I, I mean, no, you could do a great deal, but it was fun to be able to access Microsoft Outlook and, and all the other products and so on. So I think you did an operating system. You needed the... Um, I think the certainly the screens on the Windows phone was very pleasant to look through. I think BlackBerry um, had that issue, but they did really, really well in in the um, in the Far East in particular. Mm -hmm. And people asked a question. You know, um, do you remember that there was a talk about getting some, um, you know, almost like a uh, Indiegogo to get BlackBerry to come back and so on? Because literally, there's a, such a strong fan base. But currently, according to information online, they are still active as an organization, but into more into cybersecurity and Internet of Things. So for me, the, the BlackBerry was almost their first invention, but they moved on. And, and and we still talk about it you know, with, with fondness, and and that links links me to the to the Apple Lisa. Yeah. So, I I mean I started with computers. I would say much much later. So our very first computer at home, as what I've shared in the past, was the Auric Atmos, a, a British um, in, invention, forty eight K. You know that's <laughs> so. Yeah. So nineteen eighty three is way before my time, and and I couldn't help but smile because th this was marketed at nine thousand. $995. So just, no, I always laugh at this idea. Yeah, let's shave off a, a fiver and people will fall about themselves buying it because it's not quite 10,000. But what, what was interesting is so it was a commercial failure. And therefore, one could assume, a bit like Blabbery, then you stop. But that's not what Apple did, because what Apple did then, they, they literally deconstructed the Apple Lisa and go, well, what are the bits that people really enjoy? They enjoy the, uh, you know, the, the, the man, they enjoy. And they then were able to launch out of, you know, it's like the, the, the inner workings of Apple Lisa, the Apple Macintosh. And then, you know, history carries on. So, so for me, it's also a lesson as 
you've got, you've got to try something. You've got to fly the Concorde at least the once, you know, to, for the rest of the, the industry to, to move forward. And then what was interesting, I, I can't tell whether it was a clever marketing and PR ploy or just this, but then people say, well, why is it called Lisa? And is it because um, Steve Jobs' daughter is called Lisa? Or is it an acronym for, for something? And that went on for years. So there was this bizarre kind of uh, word of mouth marketing going on just on the name people trying to. And whether it was cleverly or just because he wasn't particularly interested, but it took um, decades for um, Steve Jobs doing an interview for a, his official biographer to say, yeah, it was named after my, my daughter, but nobody knew. So people were making things up and and eventually out of sheer irritation, people called it the Apple Lisa, which stands for let's invent a stupid acronym. <laughs> Very good. Very good. I didn't actually know that story. <laughs> That's quite nice. I wasn't going to mention Concord, actually, but I have to because I've just yes, realized, you know, it it, it said um, it was finally retired on November the 26, 2003. Now, I was actually flying back from London on November the 26, 2003 from Edinburgh to, uh, from, to London to Edinburgh. And the con a, a number of Concords were doing almost like a trip around the UK, visiting all the airports to sort of have a nice send-off. And we, I was flying up in, a, it was an A320 or something, a BA A320, and we followed that Concorde into Edinburgh Airport. So we were behind it. And I remember the pilot coming on and saying, if you actually look out of the um, left-hand window, you'd be able to see the Concorde on final approach. But we've had to go further out over the 4th uh, over the Firth of Forth for our approach because we don't want to get caught up in Concorde's wake, wake turbulence because the engines are so powerful, even when they're on idle coming into land, that we have to have a bigger degree of separation between ourselves and the Concorde. So I could just see this minuscule, tiny little Concorde <laughs> landing at Edinburgh. But then the absolute joy was that when we did land at Edinburgh, we parked next to it and we as we were getting off we got a fantastic view of that final concord and obviously about half an hour later it, it took off again that was remarkable i hung around and watched it take back off and that was the last time i ever saw concord fly yeah so i saw it twice i can't recall whether it was a takeoff or landing but one london gatwick and one in in paris and that roar was so unique, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That you, you, it was almost like part of the, you know, if I may stretch it, it's from the audio branding, you know, you, you, the roar of that of that aircraft. Yeah, and and it's still, it's still strange to me that nobody, you know, none of the the current, if you like, you know, uh, aircraft operators and so on, has has had the will and desire to keep investing. No, no. I mean, to think that it was built and designed in the 60s, the 1960s, mm -hmm. and we now own the situation where we haven't got anything as remarkably advanced as that. That is a definite lesson for history, isn't it? Yeah, well, to your point, we've got aircraft mm. who don't work so well anymore. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah absolutely right. <laughs> Always a pleasure to go down memory lane with you, my dear friend. But let's move on and get back into the present with our next segment, Marketing Taken Apps. So, Roger, you've done the research, and what have you found that can make life easier as a content creator and marketer? 
No, Pascal, I've sort of gone down another little bit of a rabbit hole this week because over the years, I've all constantly seen a type of marketing tool. And I've always looked at it sort of out the corner of my eye or and just thought that really isn't for me. I, I just don't get this. And yet they seem to be incredibly popular. So this week I thought, you know what? Let's try and find out what the fuss is about. And what I'm talking about, and, and it's a genre, I, I don't know whether there's a generic, generic name for it, but is animated drawing video creation software or animated drawing video. So you've seen them. Um, it, it, it's where you have a demonstrator video or you have a commentary video or you have a presentation but there's like a hand drawing the person on the screen and then the person might have a speech bubble and then the bullet points might come up or it might be a scene outside in the street and the hand draws the the um, street and then the hand draws a bus and then the hand draws somebody walking along the street and that becomes part of the presentation and when i've seen this i've just thought i just don't get it i don't find this sort of thing engaging and yet so many marketing people use these either to create adverts to create informer videos to create training videos that i just wondered why i was missing the thing so i had a look at two of these animated drawing video software creators one's called doodly and the other one is called Video Scribe. And I chose those purely because they were the top two on Google. There are plenty more. And what I found quite fascinating is that they were pretty much identical. They're not cheap. You know, you're talking uh, getting on for four or $500 to use one of these in its most basic form for a year. You know, that's, an, that's a similar sort of cost if not more than the entire Adobe suite, which includes Premiere Pro, Photoshop, After Effects, Audacity, etc., etc. So this isn't cheap technology. Uh, but I had a look at each of them. I've, I've had a look at tutorial videos. I had a look at the demo. And actually putting one of these things together is not as simple as you might think. I mean, they make a big thing out of it in the advertising, you know, put in a figure here, put in a scene there, the hand comes in. and But it's it's as in-depth i think as actually shooting a proper video and editing a proper video because as i found out you have to place everything you have to move everything from one place to another and you have to add a voiceover if that's what you're doing or you have to add the bullet points and you have to add the, the text and by the end of this i'm still sitting there thinking i just don't think this is for me I just don't get it, but I've got now a much more of, of an appreciation for the software and actually for the quite amazing amount of detail that it contains. Couldn't tell you whether I would prefer Doodly or Videoscribe, to be honest. They're very, very, very similar indeed. Very similar in, in, in functionality and very similar in price. So I suppose my question today is, I want to understand the appeal of this sort of video, of this sort of presentation technique. It doesn't appeal to me, and that's fine. I'm probably not the target audience for it, but they do seem to be incredibly popular. So please do let us know. Talk to us on Twitter, X, or whatever it's called these days. Talk to us on um, on the YouTube channel. Leave a comment. What is it about these animated drawing 
creators that is so engaging and pascal what do you think of these things well it's interesting because actually i um remember buying a, a solution the name escapes me many many years ago and a bit like you maybe because i'm i'm just wedded to moving images and sound you know cinematic kind of uh, visual storytelling I, I did one or two but i just couldn't find a way for this to become part of my voice or a part of my kind of um, routine because i think you need to do more than one you need to make it part of a of a, of a content marketing campaign but i think it doing very well in um what would be called explainer videos yes. or where there is an element of training and knowledge sharing and, and so on. Um, and also, of course, uh, for what is now called, you know, the, the maker industry. So if you want to do a time lapse or explain a, a few things, but I think you're right, you know, it, it has to resonate with you because if as a creator, you end up using a tool because it's trending, but you don't have that spark, you don't have that fire in your, in your belly. I think it'll show a, a bad, the, the low frequency of your, of your outputs, but also probably a, a rather average quality because you're not going to be very passionate about it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, I'm sure that it, it's, it's very popular for a reason and that people love it. I just, just, I just don't get it, but I take my hat off to the people who put this stuff together because when you go into it, the software is very, very powerful and you can do a lot with it. And it isn't actually as simple as you might think putting one of these things together. It is as difficult, I would suggest, as me recording myself doing an explainer and then editing it in Adobe Premiere Pro than putting together a video of a doodle person explaining the same thing. Mm. There you are. <laughs> what have That's you got for us this week then, Pascal? So that's interesting. Um, I seem to have a bit of a technique now going on with the marketing tech and apps where I use the, uh, I'm inspired by conversation I have with clients. And then I think, oh, what, what could work? Now, sometimes things that I know and I can mention it, or I need to do some research. And recent conversation has been about, I suppose, the, 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 the challenge to explain to somebody else what you have in your head as an idea for content so that they go ahead and write it for you or they go ahead and and do a you know video for you and so on so this idea of briefing and creating a helpful meaningful content brief including using ai for that matter i know they call prompts but i still i prefer the term brief because i think it says it more so to help you out i've done some research i've come across two um, online solution that can help you put together a brief and outline. So these are no solution that are going to do it for you, which is very, very important. So the first platform is called SEOreviewtools.com and they have what they call a content outline generator. So what you do, you have a simple form to complete with where you put maybe the title of your article, you put some keywords, you have a drop down menu that can help you choose between a blog or, or a listicle or an essay, you know, so different times and format and then you you click on kind of uh, give me an outline and they use ai but within minutes you do get a very good outline of a future article that you can then use to brief somebody else or indeed you know brief uh, an assistant or a team member so, on. so i've done the tests uh, my client was looking to create an article on setting business goals so i wrote all this i chose a blog article and the outline that i got back was really really quite extensive i won't read all of it but you had you know sections and then you had subsections, and within the subsection, you had suggestions about what I should have. So you have an introduction. Then you have the importance of setting business goals. A, you have benefits, and then you have four benefits. Then B, you have how to set up 
um, goals. Then you have four suggestions. Understanding SMART goals, strategies for setting goals, all of them with subsections, overcoming challenges in setting business goals. And then you have conclusion examples and so on. Now, I did the test where I wrote the outline myself first, very, very quick little piece of paper, then I use this tool. And I would say that it did suggest maybe two or three that had forgotten. And I think that's where it's very helpful for me. You know, you can start to jot it down for yourself, then use this as an assistant to remind you of all the, some of the things you've forgotten. And then you compile the brief yourself, put that human touch, and you can distribute that. And the second one from the point of view of briefing is briefing somebody for a video. Now, very often, what you can do is get to the point where you made a list of the shot, maybe you have the script, but you want to explain visually what you're looking for. So I came across this AI image generator from deepai.org. And what is really nice, you have a simple interface where you put the, um, you copy and paste from your document, the, the script maybe, or the shot list or the description of what that scene is. You can then choose a style you can go Art Deco, you can go hand-drawn, you can, you can go futuristic and so on. But what you get, and you can choose a side, you can go square, portrait or landscape. But what you get is an image that is meant to illustrate what you've used words for, the shot list or the description. So I did the test where, you know, I've started a video with um, um, uh, modern building, the sun is rising, people are, are going to work, and it's a busy street. That's what I put into this uh, deepai.org, and I chose Art Deco as the style. And what I got back was literally a 16 by 9 um, bit of image that you would have thought a um, you know a, a, an individual would have written done, you know, like the, the storyboard that you can see sometime in the bonus section of a DVD. I'm just thinking that is very, very helpful to fix to your existing script and shortlist because somebody can then imagine and relate to what you have in mind. So there we have it, uh, using the tag to create better briefs so you can get better results from your suppliers, your teammates, and even AI. Content outline generator and the AI image generator. I think these are two good examples of, of the way AI should develop in that you are totally in control and it's your brief that makes the output better. Um, and again, a mistake that a lot of people are making at the moment is going to something like ChatGPT and saying, write me an article about X or write me an article about Y. And they get a load of banal um, crap back. Whereas if you brief these um, this software properly, almost like you would brief an agency, you know, that sort of detail, then what you're likely to get back from it is going to be relatively good quality. Uh, I would agree. And that's why, um, even though I mentioned a moment ago, people use the term prompt, you know, you have prompt yeah. engineers now all over LinkedIn. Uh, I think the term prompt is very misleading because it suggests actually something very short and succinct. Mm. You need a full brief. I mean, literally this yeah. outline, if you wanted to, I don't think you would get a very satisfactory result, but you could literally then get this outline then ask ChatGPT or another to write the article for you. I think you get a better result than a one-line prompt, but you and I've done the test, you know, the amount of editing that follows is such that you might as well write it for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you very much. Fine selections, and uh, we'll we'll have a, uh, a play with Doodly and and Video Scribe. I'm just very very curious. But listen, we have reached the end of the show. Our final segment, one of our favourites, film marketing. Just after this. So it was your turn to choose the film, Roger, and you've gone for the 1968 war film, Where Eagles Dare. Let's remind ourselves by watching the trailer. Here he is at the Schloss Adler, the castle of the eagles. Believe me, it's well known, because only an eagle can get to it. Our job is to get inside there and get him out as soon as possible. Major Bergholder, my adjutant. Renon, go! Colonel Weissner, team security. Major von Harpen, Gestapo. Allow me to introduce myself. Major Johann Schmidt, SS Military Intelligence, Stuttgart. Cut! Richard Burton. Take your clothes off. Don't argue. Take your clothes off. Hello? Clint Eastwood. Now with McPherson dead, there's only five of us left. So either let me know what's going on or there's only going to be four. From the company that brought you The Dirty Dozen. And the author who gave you The Guns of Navarone. Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Lieutenant, drop that gun. What? Drop that gun and sit down. What the hell are you talking about? Where eagles dare. What a film, Pascal. I love that trailer. Again, the, the the trailer is old school, isn't it? You know, but it just conveys the fact that this is an action adventure. The music is fantastic. The scenery is fantastic. And there are lots of explosions and lots of shooting. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people describe this as one of the best, if not the best, war movie of all time. Um, and I, I, I would probably, I would probably agree with that. It is a fabulous film. It's got a very good story. You, you start watching it thinking that it's just um, sort of men on a mission. Um, parachuting into the Alps to rescue somebody from a castle that's basically on the top of a mountain and pretty much impregnable, and the only way you can get to it is by a cable car. And But then as the film develops, it becomes more of an espionage thing. There's a lot of double agents and triple agents and quadruple agents, <laughs> and, the, and there's one particular scene where you, you're sitting there and Clint Eastwood, Eastwood, who's one of the stars of the film, 
is sitting there thinking, what the hell is going on here? Who's on whose side and who's who am I working for? And, and, and the audience is sitting there thinking what's going on. And then, of course, that gets resolved. And then the last hour of the film is just a oh. Oh, roller coaster escape from this castle in the Alps with explosions, cable cars, shooting explosions and just about everything until it, 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 it they escape in the aircraft right at the end uh just just a roller coaster ride fabulous film one of your favorites pascal yes i mean it's one of those where you almost make an appointment so we stumbled upon it over the christmas holidays here in the uk i think it was being shown on on the bbc or or channel four and literally it was i was so lucky it was the beginning and you know when uh, we we hear them in the trailer the um that main theme where the drums start and then it builds up and builds up to this whole orchestral and um, piece and the moment you hear the drums you almost go i'll, I'll stop what i'm doing i'm going to sit down and watch <laughs> it. The, the the other film that that does it to me is jaws i mean i've seen it a hundred times it's currently being shown back in the uk on itv4 it doesn't matter where it is i just thought i'm doing and i watch uh, no matter and what is interesting about um th th this movie it took a while, actually, to get to that pole position of one of the best uh, war film. We, we, we can really discuss that. But it's also one where the trailer, to me, is an honest trailer. So mm. that is to say, the majority of war films up to that point, with some exceptions, will be one where you know you have a very linear story. Good guys, bad guys, go from A to B. And then when you get to B, it's the big finale, the big payoff for the audience who's been very patient with the almighty battlefield moment. And then you win the battle and then you light your cigar and you, just, <laughs> you say something very clever or comedic at the end and you, you've got the closing credit. This is one that is, is, is very, very different. And I like the fact that the trailer didn't try and mislead people in thinking this is your... Uh, and I, I like all of them, but you, your normal, more mainstream war film, this is actually, you're right, there's intrigue, there's espionage, a twist and turn. Um, and the escape, I mean, it's edge of your seat stuff. I mean, I've seen it at least a good 20, 30 times over the years. And, and you still root for our, our heroes because it's not a given that they're going to escape uh, all of them, certainly um, safely. No, and I, I, I think because it was obviously set in World War Two, it hasn't aged because you can watch it, and because it's a historical film, you know. Yes, there's no mobile phones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that was that was it. So you can watch it now, and it's just as exciting because it is in context. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. It broke the mold because before this, we had films like The Guns of Navarone, even The Great Escape. I guess is 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 in the same sort of ilk. Um, Whereas this did change it and started introducing the espionage and all of that. Now, I love some of the taglines for this. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've got a massive ensemble cast. So Richard Burton, who was famous for playing um, in Shakespearean dramas and films like Antony and Cleopatra. We've got Clint Eastwood, who was just breaking into mainstream. So this is Clint Eastwood before Dirty Harry. This is Clint Eastwood just after the Spaghetti Western films. Mary Hewer, who was a big um, star of the day. Um, Ingrid Pitt, who appeared in loads of Hammer horror films. Mm. Um, Anton Diffring, who is probably has probably played more uh, badass German um, soldiers in many, many films just playing 
himself effectively. Uh, Robert Beatty, who plays the um, the, gen- the uh, General Cartwright, who's the guy who they're supposed to be rescuing. My father used to know Robert Beatty um, really quite well, and I remember meeting Robert Beatty on a number of occasions, and remember him and my dad sat either in our living room or Robert Beatty's living room, having a whiskey and actually talking about where eagles dare and this that would wow. be in the 70s when i was when i was very very young but that ensemble cast you know were described by the taglines as they look like nazis but the major is british the lieutenant is american the beautiful florines florines are allied agents and then they dare to climb a terrifying <laughs> new peak in suspense all the way up to hell now i love that 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 strap line appears in the poster as well they dare to climb terrifying new peak basically this guy that they're trying to rescue is in this castle which is on the top of a mountain and the castle is called the sloss adler and as i said there's only one way of getting to it which is a cable car and here's a fabulous tangent but as they were making this film in 1968 there must have been another film crew a few mountains along (laughs) in making the james bond film on her majesty's secret service which actually also had a base on the top of a mountain and the only way to get to it was through a cable car and that was called Piz Gloria and the ironic thing is that Piz Gloria and this Sloss Adler uh, uh, castle still exist today and you can go and visit them I think that's absolutely fantastic um, and the other strap line I love these people work for the military first they're going to get the enemy then they're going to then they're going after the brass that sent them so it was probably the first men on a mission genre and of course, we've had so many of those since. And, um, you know, I think you mentioned in the green room, the uh, Tarantino film Inglorious Bastards. I think that can trace its lineage back to where Eagles Dare. And if you look at films like Guns of Navarone and The Great Escape, they were war films, but they weren't bloody war films. You know, you could get somebody shot a million times by a machine gun and yet they had a completely pristine, you know, mm. ironed uh, uh, jacket. Whereas in Where Eagles Dare, that's when they started introducing blood and and real physical, quite you know, disturbing effects. And, and war films became bloody war films, more realistic and more violent. And again, you can trace that back to this film as well. I think what is interesting is the, from the storytelling point of view, and and it's, it's become almost like stuff of legend by the quick turnaround for the script by Alistair McLean and so on. Yeah. But th- there is something actually very much grounded in in the storytelling that we know. So this is the assault of the castle. Th- these are the knights in shiny armor attacking the castle where an evil wizard lives and that kind of thing. So there is something that is very grounded in almost you know century old. Uh, kind of fairy tale, you could argue, uh, but you add on to that this element of uh, you know treachery, and I mean there, there was even obviously um, because there's two storyline that there's what's happening back at base uh, in the UK where there's there are some spies and some you know, and then you've got what's happening obviously in in Eastern Europe, and and you as the audience you get to know both sides, but actually you know more than you know the, the people on the mission themselves, whereby there is obviously uh, people who are trying to sabotage the mission itself because they do believe that um, the Pharaoh should be the rightful ruler of the whole Western world. Um, so for me, there's, there was something about, uh, we recognize a lot of the symbolism. We appreciate actually 
how daring this was to bring all this cast together from different filmmaking cultures, you could argue, you know, from Clint Eastwood and, and whatever. And you're taking on, on, on this ride and, and using real locations. So this was before you could even imagine. I mean, there may have been some matte painting in some occasion, but they were on location. And, and in fact, some of the documentaries you found and so on, you know, you can see people basically stood there uh, in a in a store store waiting for that turn to film the scene, and I'm sure the cameras kind of um, you know machinery was frozen and that kind of thing. So there was it was this was a hard shoot, but because it was done uh, on location and 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 I, and I think as an experience, you know, both in terms of the music what you can see and so on, this was really well achieved. But they had a bit of a challenge when it came to the marketing because again that they were not doing the war film that people have been, have been used to and i came across it was a bit random actually when i was reading about it this um comment from uh, vincent canby who wrote for the new york times and this was a reaction from 2005 probably at the release when they were releasing a blu-ray or or 4k a, a box set and, and i thought that's kind of very telling so vincent canby said in the new york times uh, recommending people should watch the film. It is so long, almost three hours, that it may finally bore the very action trade for which it was intended. Yet, it's just at that point of surface boredom that the movie aficionado will probably become entranced. <laughs> well, I mean, we've criticised films more recently for being far too long. Um, I mean, again, it, there is a slow burn to this film. It starts slow to build up the characters, to build up the plot. There's quite a lot of exposition, as I've said in the uh, earlier on. Mm. But once the fighting starts, you've got literally about 70 to 80 minutes of non-stop action at the end as they try to escape from this castle. And it is just quite remarkable. Now, having a look at some of the marketing, obviously, we're talking of a film that was made over 50 years ago. It's hard to find much. Obviously, we've watched the trailer. Love it. There was a load of good posters, and we've, mm. we've discussed some of the taglines that were used in those posters. What I do like about the posters is that a lot of the posters were actually artwork, uh, drawings of the characters, almost like a cartoon comic strip approach rather than actual photographs of the film stars and pho photographs of the locations. And I think that gave it that sort of boy's own it reminded me of the Commando comic strip books that you used to be <laughs> able right, to yeah. buy, buy in the 70s and 80s. And I love that. The, those posters are just so vibrant and, and so colourful. And as you would expect as well, there were lobby cards. I even managed to find one lobby card of... Richard Burton and Ingrid Pitt from the uh, the tavern scene, which is, which is really interesting. And and one of the things that I loved is that um, obviously back in the in the nineteen sixties was no social media, but forty years later somebody had the idea, and it was actually the comedian Al Murray who posted this on Twitter oh. a few years ago. It's called the Where Eagles Dare Drinking Game, <laughs> and basically you 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 can um, have a drink. At any time in the film when they say one of their sort of immortal lines like broadsword calling Danny boy, broadsword calling Danny boy, or, uh, you know, um, we've got company or uh, who dares wins, which is where where that phrase originated from. And and th this this uh, social media post is just absolutely 
absolutely gorgeous. I just, I just love it. It's so funny. And he's saying, you know, by if you're not absolutely out of your face drunk by then, you can always have a drink every time. Um, Clint Eastwood gives a confused glimpse over <laughs> towards uh, to Richard Burton. Now, I mean, that's probably all we've got from from the marketing. But you know, you look back, and it's it has influenced so many people. Steven Spielberg cites it as his favorite war film. Tarantino says it's his favorite men on a mission film, and of course, he went on to make Inglorious Bastards, which is a very similar sort of concept and indeed within where eagles dare there's a there's a pretty sinister um gestapo uh agent played by um uh, uh darren nesbitt a blonde guy in a, in a black mm. uh, gestapo uniform who's who gives a really quite scary and chilling performance and i think tarantino actually took that character and that performance to uh create the um the similar gestapo agent played by christoph whose name the surname escapes me in inglorious bastards so i think you can see the roots that uh that where eagles dare planted that we can now see blooming in in modern day in modern day films i also love some of the trivia that i've discovered for this pascal it is so good so Despite Clint Eastwood's reputation for violence in other movies, this is the movie in which he kills more people than in every, <laughs> any other of his films. And you think about Clint Eastwood's played some pretty badass people, hasn't he? Dirty Harry, um, the man with no name from the Spaghetti Western films. He's been in all sorts of other films, but this is the one where he was absolutely on point. Clint Eastwood also referred to this movie as Where Doubles Dared, as opposed to Where Eagles Dare, because there was so much action in it that they had stand-ins for quite a lot mm. of the scenes. Uh, this movie contains, and you'll love this as a filmmaker, 1,472 edits during that two-hour, 38 minutes. Um, and, you know, some of the shots are only six seconds long, so absolutely incredible. The castle, the actual castle, is called the Slosh Hohenwerfen, and it's the same castle that you can be see in the background in The Sound of Music. Um, and it was also recently used in an Amazon film called, an Amazon TV series called The Man in the High Castle. That's right, yes. The Man in the High Castle. This is a sad bit of trivia, but the Junkers aircraft that you see in the opening sequence that they parachute out of and that same aircraft rescues them at the end of the film that aircraft was still flying up until 2018 only four or five years ago and sadly it crashed and there were fatalities which is incredibly sad um what i, I came across on the internet as well an amateur uh youtuber went back and found all the locations and quite sadly he even hiked up the side of the mountain to get the exact the exact location and the exact angle this is one of the best uh, youtube videos i've ever seen of somebody doing film locations and finally and this is absolutely must watch is a conversation this is from about 10 years ago with Darren Nesbitt, the guy who plays the sinister Gestapo um, officer. He's in conversation with, with an interviewer and he is such a funny, 
engaging storyteller, completely opposite to that horrible Gestapo character he played in the film. That's another must-watch because you can learn so much about just raconteur storytelling just by watching that. So diving in and thinking about where eagles dare we might not have come up with much marketing material but we've learned so many lessons about the legacy that it's left behind no absolutely and and what is very interesting uh, for me is to reflect on the year 1968 which meant that and particularly because back then movies would be uh, screened more than once over a number of years you know that that's not really what happens now where it's screened once they're then being criticized for not earning enough that weekend say come on give the audience a bit of time and we've got busy lives and then it's the the, the kind of scrambling do we go streaming do we go dvds and blu-rays and so on so i think there's also uh, we need to remind ourselves that this is that would have been marketed over months, if not years, and, and mm. rescreened by independent cinemas and so on. But it was also really, and I think that's interesting because the, 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 the premise and the, I suppose, you know, the, the brief that the filmmakers gave themselves was, can we make something that an entire family can go and see? Mm. And, and there is, you know, anecdotes suggesting that actually one of Richard Burton's stepsons had complained to him that he couldn't see Richard Burton's movies because he was always too young. Yes. He was allowed to go to the screening. So there's almost an element of clear audience I into place. Um, then you craft, you know, the story, you, you take out the key messages. I think the posters, you know, that they, they had two versions, one which was about, we're going to sell the ensemble cast as one key message visually. And I'll agree with you, those artists are just incredible. I mean, you would want to have the full version and frame it in, into, into your kind of living room or screening room. And then the other one was actually, because it is really such a standout moment, the whole cable car things is featured into a different po poster version. And then from a marketing point of view, then you know you compete for someone's times and, and wallets. So this was the year 68, Roger, of Planets of the Apes. Mm. This was the year, or once upon a time in the West, 2001, The Space Odyssey, Bullet was also released. But even, you know, um, older actors knew that this it was time to change. And John Wayne got involved in the Green Barretts, you know, and then you had things like Ant Station Zebra. So uh, the, the reason why this movie is important and why I'm so excited to talk to you about it is, is both from the point of view of um marketing you know you have the product element for the promotions and so on but also this idea of ushering the the, the beginning of 70s style production and and how do you do that with actors who've been around some of them you know from the 60s and, and before I, I just think it's fascinating yeah absolutely incredible i um and and the interesting thing is is i haven't re-watched this film in order to talk about it today, right. uh, simply because I just don't, I don't own it in any format at all. Uh, but it's so vivid in my mind that you know I, I can quote lines from it, and we will be watching it again very, <laughs> very soon. Thank you very much. What a fine selection for film marketing. Everybody, this is the end of this episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Please subscribe and leave comments in particular for the different sections and suggestions in the usual places. Until the next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. That was Pascal Fintoni and here was Roger Edwards. <laughs>